Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. You know, there's no question that crypto has become the me- a mechanism of choice for ransomware. They find that, uh-oh, when they use Bitcoin, it all travels on a public ledger. It's very traceable. It's immutable. And effectively, because it's a public ledger, it's actually giving law enforcement an incredible tool to actually find them, identify them, disrupt them, seize their crypto. Crypto actually get, gives you... And blockchain analytic tools give you the opportunity to detect and disrupt national security threats in a way that I think is is very, very important. There's all kinds of really sophisticated and fascinating ways that you can use those technologies to counter corruption because of the nature of the technology. We need to have a national strategy to incentivize that financial technology out of the United States. That should be something that's really driven in the White House with the National Security Council and the National Economic Council. And I know there are lots of people, you know, who are really thinking about this problem. Seagal Mandelker is an expert in finance and national security. From 2017 to 2019, she served as the Undersecretary of the Treasury for Terrorism and Financial Intelligence. During her career, she also served in the Department of Justice, the Department of Homeland Security, and as law clerks to two federal judges, including U.S. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Now in the private sector at Ribbert Capital, Seagal is involved in helping to bring innovation to the financial industry. I just sat down with Seagal to talk about her career and the important links between finance and national security. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor, Lockheed Martin. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. 
Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Seagal, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It's very nice to have you with us. Thank you. It's uh, really terrific to be here. So Seagal, we're going to discuss a little later in the episode the responsibilities you had in your most recent job in government at the Treasury Department. But one of those responsibilities included um, financial sanctions, imposing them, monitoring them, you know, a lot of different things with regard to them. And I know you have a story about the first sanctions that were ever imposed on another country by the United States. And it's a story that intersects with your life story. And I'd love if you could share that with us. Yeah, thank you so much. It's a, I, I think it's a really remarkable story. And it, it's actually one that I learned uh, several months into my time at Treasury because we had an incredible speaker come in um, uh, who's a historian at the Holocaust Museum uh, named Rebecca Erbelding, who wrote a great book called um, Rescue Board. Anyway, it, it basically sanctions um, as we know them today really started on April 9, 1940. When Henry Morgenthau, who was then the Secretary of the Treasury, was looking at at the morning paper or the morning cables, and he sees that Hitler has invaded Denmark and Norway. He has no executive authority really to do so, but he picks up the phone and he calls the head of the New York Fed and he says, you know, all of those assets that that you're holding for Denmark and Norway, I want you to freeze them just freeze them. And the head of the New York Fed does it. And of course, the reason he wanted to freeze them was to keep Hitler from um, getting access to those funds. The very next day, Roosevelt signs the first executive order, really authorizing right what we know today as sanctions. And in fact, during the course of the war, every time Hitler invaded a country, they did the same thing. They froze mm-hmm. the assets that were held Um, uh, in the United States of that country. And ultimately, they were able to freeze about $8 billion that way. Not all of it connected to Germany, but most of it. Um, Mm. And if you think about that $8 billion, that's about, um, in today's money, that's about $150 billion. So obviously, it didn't stop the atrocities of the Holocaust. But imagine what Hitler would have been able to do if he had access to those funds. Right, right. The story then goes on. Um, and uh, during the war, the only way to get access into Nazi-occupied territory was by through by getting a license from uh, the predecessor the predecessor agency um, to um, OFAC, um, which was called the Office of Foreign Funds Control. It was in the Treasury Department, and um, it's the predecessor agency to the part of Treasury that I now that I when I was at Treasury, I, I um, oversaw among other things. Um, So during the course of the war, different organizations came in to try to get a license um, to be allowed to get um, assets into those countries. And there's a lot of risk aversion. And and repeatedly, the answer was no. Until 1943, the World Jewish Congress uh, goes um, to the Treasury Department to to a man named John Pele, who was um, relatively young, young 30s, who was heading up that office. And they said, among other things, there are Jewish children in hiding in Nazi-occupied France. And we need to get assets in there in order to help them escape and ultimately Mm. survive. 
And it was that request that really motivated John Paley to say, okay, we got to help. We got to do something here. Um, and it seems right to you and me probably like something of a no-brainer. But, um, but in order to actually effectuate the license, Treasury had to get approval from the State Department. Um, and then there was a battle that ensued between the Treasury Department and the State Department over a period of, of, of months with um, the State Department not wanting to be um, helpful. Uh, and, and Treasury started to get a bit suspicious of what was happening, what was going on at the State Department. And so um, over a weekend, they snuck into the State Department um, through a friend, um, and they ended up uncovering and getting access to a bunch of cables uh, in which um, that had been sent to the State Department documenting effectively what was happening in Europe with the concentration camps, among other things. And of course, they were stunned. They go back to the Treasury Department and they write an 18-page memo to Secretary Morgenthau going through all of the different points in time where State Department, the State Department hid what was happening. Um, and they titled the, the memo, Report to the Secretary on the acquiesce, acquiescence of this government in the murder of the Jews. Mm. And Morgenthau, within a couple of days, this is now like around January 1944, within a couple of days, he takes that information, he takes it to President Roosevelt and said, Mr. Roosevelt, you have to do something here. You have to, you have to help. And Roosevelt says yes. Um, and he ultimately decided to stand up something called the War, <clears throat> the War Refugee Board, um, which was um, uh, run. He, he picked actually that John Pele, who was in his young, young 30s from the Treasury Department to run the War Refugee Board, not a typical Treasury, you know, mandate, but uh, I think he un understood that you could not now put that in the hands of the State Department. Um, and they ended up saving tens of thousands, um, if not more, of Jews and, other, and others who were, you know, victims in, in, the, in the Holocaust. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The remarkable part of that story for me um, was that at the very same time uh, that those tr really courageous Treasury Department stood up to do, officials stood up to do the right thing because they found out that there were Jewish children in hiding in Europe. My parents were Jewish children in hiding in, in Poland. Um, so imagine sort of this incredible uh, circle of life, right, where you've got a child of survivors um, uh, now leading this program at the Treasury at the Treasury Department uh, of of that was previously you know you know employed the the really courageous people at the Treasury Department who were working to help sa save um, Jewish children in in hiding. It's um, you yeah. Know, it I have to I have to tell you I've heard you tell this story before and I get goosebumps every time. It's really an amazing story. So, Sagal, could you briefly walk us through your career? And if you can, let us know what motivated you and who, motiv who motivated you along the way. Well, what motivated me um, along the way fundamentally really was um, my family history. Um, so, you know, it, it's uh, I went into the Justice Department um, shortly after 9-11. I had clerked. Uh, um, on the Supreme Court um, during 9/11, which was quite an experience, and then I, um, I, what I really wanted to do 
um, uh, you know, a 9-11 hit was to go and, and join the fight against, um, against al-Qaeda and um, the fight to protect our national security. Uh, and so I was honored to be and humbled to be able to join the Justice Department in, in, 2000, in 2002. I went um, then to work for Michael Chertoff, who was head of the criminal division at the Justice Department. Um, um, from there, and I, again, we mostly worked on national security. Um, from there, uh, Chris Ray, was, who's now the director of the FBI, mm. was actually uh, in the deputy attorney general's office. And he and Larry Thompson, who was then the deputy attorney general, recruited me uh, to go up to that to that office, to the deputy attorney general's office, to help fight the war on terror from from uh, from the perspective of that office. Um, I then went on to Manhattan to be a prosecutor in the southern in the southern district of New York. Um, uh, during that time period, Mike Chertoff was uh, nominated to be Secretary of Homeland Security, and he asked me to come back to be um, sort of part of his small office of people who were helping him manage. The Department of Homeland Security. So I, I couldn't say no. And I, I, I did that. I was a counselor to the secretary. And then I went back to the Justice Department at that point um, after, after that to be a deputy assistant attorney general, where, by the way, remarkably, um, Michael, I, was, uh, I supervised a number of different sections, uh, including OSI, which was the traditional Nazi hunting section. <laughs> so my uh -huh. life kind of intersected. I also, we helped really stand up a, uh, an effort to have, uh, to go after all kinds of um, human rights violators. I also supervised the computer crime section, the child exploitation section. Um, uh, and then, and then in 2009, I went into private practice. I, I was, a, I ended up being a partner at a law firm, Proskauer, for eight years. Um, wasn't planning on going back into the government. Uh, out of the blue in December 2016, I was, I got a call asking if I would be willing to be considered to be the undersecretary of the Treasury for Terrorism and Financial Intelligence. Um, and it was actually a difficult decision for me because, um, as, as you know very, very well, there's a lot of um, sacrifice to public service that <laughs> so many people in public service uh, go through. Um, right, right. Uh, and ultimately, Actually, it was a call that I had with one of my. I've been I've been very fortunate to have a lot of mentors along the way, and and this was a call that I had with um, Justice Thomas, who I who I had clerked for, and I when I was asking him should I do this, and he this is Clarence Thomas on the Supreme yes. Court, yeah. yeah, and he said to me, he said, well, what would your mother say? And my mom had passed away a number of years before, and I said, well, you know, she would have been she would have been proud, and he said no. What would your mother say with what your family went through in World War II? He knew my family history, you know, how they survived the Holocaust, how so many people in your family actually didn't survive, because probably about, I would guess, 90, 95% of my family was killed. Um, and what your parents then went through and struggled through ultimately to come to the United States, you know, and, and give your you and your brother a better life and pursue the American dream. He said, I'm not telling you what to do, but what would she say? Mm. <laughs> and so I think he had, I think he had you right there. <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. He later said, I didn't tell you what to do. And I said, Oh, really? <laughs> Cause let me, let's go through that. But he, you know what? He, he was, uh, he was right. You know, it was, um, the ability to go back into public service to help, you know, our, our national security to go after, uh, you know, bad actors all over the world to go after human rights violators, um, and corrupt actors, uh, to really help in the, in, uh, areas like North Korea and Iran and Venezuela was really one of the 
one of the greatest, you know, honors. Um, and, and also to lead a remarkable career force that we had, uh, that still we have it at Treasury was um, of, of people who are um, it just so extraordinarily dedicated. So um, it was it was a great it was a great honor. So Sigal, so you end up in this very senior job at the Treasury Department. You've already mentioned it, the Undersecretary of the Treasury for Terrorism and Financial Intelligence. I want to ask you two questions. What is an undersecretary? It's kind of a, a strange term, strange for, for most people. And what were your responsibilities in that job? Sure. So an undersecretary, it, um, the, let's just say at the Treasury Department, there are plenty of undersecretaries um, all over the federal government. At the Treasury Department, um, it's one of the number three positions. So at Treasury, you have a secretary of the Treasury you have a deputy secretary. I actually was also acting deputy secretary through a big, uh, good chunk of my tenure at Treasury. And then you have three undersecretaries who are leading and managing um, the um, uh, different components of the department. Um, and I, the components that I had were OFAC, which is uh, really sort of uh, the heart of the U.S. sanctions program. What does that, what does that stand for, OFAC? It stands for Office of Foreign Assets uh, Control, and it's um, just like all of my sections was um, has an incredible role to play in the national security of our country. Um, I also oversaw FinCEN, so FinCEN is the primary regulator in the United States for anti-money uh, laundering, um, and they also do just remarkable, um, remarkable work keeping our financial infrastructure. Um, uh, in many, many different ways, safe from money laundering. I had a policy shop called um, TFFC that did a lot of work globally. All, all my components did, but they had a big focus on the global piece um, and also a lot of work with the National Security Council, um, as, as did I. Uh, and then I had an intelligence agency uh, that, I, that I oversaw. Um, in fact, the interesting piece of that, about that is that the, the U.S. Treasury Department, I believe, is the only finance ministry in the world that has its own intelligence agency, and as as you know very very well, that's a remark. You know, that's really an extraordinary um, tool for us to to have within the within the Treasury Department to uh, to go after threat finance um, all over all over the world. And, and that intelligence agency is actually part of the larger intelligence community, right? Yes, that's um, that's exactly that's exactly right. Yep. And, and so I was going to ask, can you give us an example of an issue that you worked on during your time in that job? Sure. So early on, actually, really the first week of my uh, tenure at the Treasury Department, we were charged with um, uh, with really sort of um, keeping our country safe from the threat of uh, North Korea's weapons, um, uh, you know, the developments around North Korea's um, weapons uh, mass destruction program. And, um, and, and so we had, um, uh, and, and, and the thought was that in the, the, the best way to do that was by using different levers of financial and economic pressure um, to keep them from having, A, the ability to get access to the funds that they needed in order to continue to develop that program, and B, to put a tremendous amount of economic pressure on them to get them to change uh, their behavior. Um, and, and so we had and I a guess I'd say, I, I, yeah. I guess I'd say C2, right, which is send a message to other countries who might think about going down the same road that here's what's going to happen to you. 
Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a, that is exactly it. That if you you know if you if you engage in activity that threatens you know not only just the, the U.S. national security but really go globally, then you're going to find on the other side of that you're going to really really you know have a very difficult time gaining access to that money and and a very difficult um, internal uh, problems. So when you do that, you're trying to find ways of shutting off their access to money. It's shutting off um, not only their access to the U.S. financial um, system, but we have lots of tools to uh, to shut their access off from all kinds of uh, other other financial um, other financial systems. And and part of that is um, through what we call sanctions uh, or second and and another tool that we have called secondary sanctions. Part of that is identifying and disrupting. Uh, the networks that were trying to operate sort of under the under the radar <laughs> to get um, uh, uh, funds and materials to to North Korea, um, and we had a lot of really um, incredible cases, for example, or sanctions that we were able to bring targeting vast networks that were enabling uh, that had had been working, which we c- helped cut off um, to um, to make money, you know, in order to help. Uh, to do commerce with with North Korea and banks, we we had a very heavy lever, really on banks, which is the biggest the biggest tool that we have. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with more of a discussion with Segal Mandelker. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available. On digital, Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. So, Seagal, let's shift gears a little bit here, and let me ask you about ransomware attacks. Mm -hmm. So, as everybody knows by reading the paper and watching the news, they are growing in number, and they're growing in the amount of ransom that's being requested, and as you know, in many cases, paid. What I want to ask you is about the use of cryptocurrency as what seems to be the preferred method of payment for many of these attackers. And I want to ask you that from the perspective of someone, you know, who's, who's worked in overseeing stopping illegal money transfers from, from actually happening and somebody who's interested in financial innovation, how you think about that? Sure. Well, I think a couple things that we have to recognize with ransomware. Um, number one, the, the best way to protect our country from ransomware is to do what, you know, I know the Biden administration and the private sector are very focused on, which is to to um, to enhance our cybersecurity, right? There are, the only reason ransomware um, uh, hackers have are able to successfully um, uh, put these companies and entities at, you know, sort of hostage in a sense is because there are vulnerabilities that have given them an in. Um, the number, the other piece I think it's is really important to understand as somebody who spent much of my career going after a wide range of bad actors or actors who are trying to get access to money to do bad things, right, is that 
Um, for the most part, those actors are technology neutral, right? They, they just want to find the best possible way to be able to, um, uh, to get the funding uh, that, that they need. And so whether that's through trade-based money laundering, whether that's through shell companies at traditional financial institutions, whether that's through whole wallas or cash couriers, or through cryptocurrency, they're going to they're going to go for the um, they're going to tend to be motivated to go for the thing that they think is going to get them uh, the best ability to get them the money that they that they are that they are looking thing looking for. Um, and while you know there's no question, um, and and we worked on this when I was at Treasury that crypto has become the me- a mechanism of choice for ransomware. I think that what you're um, uh, what what a lot of these t- attackers are starting to appreciate and to realize is that when they use um, uh, try to use Bitcoin, for example, this is something that you've written on, Michael. When they try to use uh, something like Bitcoin to um, to get access <laughs> to funding, uh, they find that uh oh, when they use Bitcoin, it all travels on a public ledger. It's very traceable. It's immutable. Um, and effectively, because it's a public ledger, it's leading them. Um, it's actually giving law enforcement um, an incredible, uh, an incredible tool to actually find them, identify them, disrupt them, seize their crypto, which is happening in increasing amount um, at very big numbers, and sh- shut them down and, and arrest them. So. Um, we saw that, of course, recently in, in Colonial Pipeline. You saw that a great example of that was the Twitter hack that happened uh, about a, a year ago where, where hackers were able to get access to high-profile Twitter accounts and put a put a, uh, a Bitcoin address, say, hey, give me, you know, send money here and you'll get some benefit. Um, and then, uh, um, of course, because they used crypto within two weeks, law enforcement was able to trace them down and, and arrest them, which is really um, uh, extraordinary. So yes, crypto is used for ransomware. I think um, what we're seeing with increasingly sophisticated tools like blockchain blockchain analytic tools from companies like Chainalysis, by the way, which we're um, an advisor to and we're uh, an investor in, um, is that those those kinds of tools have really been uh, fundamental to helping law enforcement go after bad activity. And, and when you drive bad activity, Trivity, um, as as we've also seen to great extent out of the um, ecosphere, you leave lots of room for super exciting, uh, you know, innovation that we're also seeing in that um, sector. And, and we have to understand that innovation, take advantage of it. I mean, there's um, a lot of really exciting stuff that's that's happening in this um, in in this space that I think uh, warrants a lot of additional uh, attention. So great transition. As I mentioned in the introduction at the beginning of the podcast, you're now working in this in this financial technology space, and maybe for the rest of the podcast, we can talk about the importance of financial technology, the importance of financial innovation to national security, and maybe the place to start is to define the term financial technology, commonly referred to as fintech. What are people talking about when they use that term, Seagal? So they're really talking about using technology to, de- to deliver a wide variety of financial 
products that can bring often much greater efficiency, transparency, security, simplicity, consumer protection, <laughs> um, uh, and uh, and also things around AML and, and, and compliance, right? So it's the, the intersection between uh, super interesting and exciting technology and financial services and how um, you know, the way I think about it is how we can use those those two to bring a much wider spectrum of products to a much greater uh, uh, number of of consumers um, who have been then who have been traditionally uh, served in the financial ecosystem, whether that's lending, finance, personal finance, insurance, financial software, um, crypto, um, and the list can the list really just goes on and on. And so why did you decide to, to do this? Why did you decide to focus on this when you left government? Yeah, so I decided to focus on this um, when I when I left government, because when I was at the Treasury Department, um, it, this was very much a global job, right? I was in 27 countries, many of them multiple times in two and a half uh, years. I met, um, it was spent time in the developing world and emerging markets. I met with lots of them, lots of very senior government officials from those countries. Um, uh, and I also met with CEOs of, of, um, of banks in a lot of those countries. Um, and repeatedly, particularly in those markets, I would have senior officials, CEOs of banks come to me and say, hey, you know, we're having problem getting access to U.S. correspondent banking. Can, can you help us? Um, and, you know, in that role, I can't tell a bank uh, where to operate. It doesn't work that right. way. We, work right. with those countries to try to get, you know, sort of help enhance, um, enhance them from a compliance um, perspective. But it became increasingly clear to me, and the numbers really bear this out, that um, that the U.S. banking presence in those regions had really um, significantly uh, decreased. And I think there are a lot of root causes for that, which uh, we could talk about at length. But but I came to the conclusion that the only way that we were going to change that picture was through financial technology uh, companies who had a different operating model, who, um, who, who had the ability and the flexibility to do, um, to operate in, in other regions without having sort of massive legacy risk systems that were keeping them from doing so, while also, you know, having, uh, having the ability to, um, to, um, to root out illicit activity, um, et cetera. So I, I just came to the conclusion that, you know, the U.S. was, um, this is a big problem for the U.S. and not a problem that I thought in those regions that our banks were going to be able to solve. Um, and I and I uh, came to the conclusion that we really needed innovation to solve it. By the way, this is not just a global issue, right? There's a whole nother right. conversation we could have about people who are um, underserved uh, today in in. Um, uh, in our country. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So, Sagal, what are the links between fintech, financial technology, and national security? So there 
there are many, um, and I'll just focus uh, on uh, on a couple. So one is this issue that I said, which is I, I fundamentally believe that um, if you don't have a U.S. presence, a financial presence um, in, uh, in a number of different countries around the world, all those tools of economic leverage that I spoke about before, whether um, uh, are going to be significantly uh, d- diminish. I'll, I'll give you a great example of that. When I was in Uganda, I had somebody um, say, when I was at Treasury, I had somebody said, say to me, like, what do you do with these sanctions? You sanction people. They come out of the bush, they go back into the bush, right? And, and he was saying that because th- when you sanction people who have no connection whatsoever to the, to the U.S. financial infrastructure, um, it really doesn't make any, any kind of a any kind of a difference. So from a national security perspective, I think it's really important um, that uh, you have a much, you know, that, that we change that, dyna- that, that dynamic. And I, again, fundamentally believe that financial technology companies can really help us get there. The, the other piece of it is um, what I was talking about with respect to ransomware. So I think, you know, again, if you look at companies that are in the blockchain analytic space, like, like again, like chain analysis, um, they they have the ability to to detect and help in the process of disrupting um, uh, the movement of of uh, illicit you know uh, um, illicit proceeds or illicit um, funding uh, to to bad to bad actors and it's really incredible what they're able to do today um, using blockchain technology and blockchain blockchain analytics actually in a way that's fundamentally not as um, in some respects, um, that's not as viable when you're talking with um, about the traditional banking system. They have different methods to detect illicit activity, but crypto and crypto actually get, gives you, and blockchain analytic tools give you the opportunity to de- to detect and disrupt um, national security um, threats in a way that I think is is very very important. Um, so it's it's those two pieces, right? Which is expanding. Um, expanding uh, presence of the U.S. Um, it's um, thinking in a much more sophisticated way how you can use things also like blockchain um, uh, to help deliver uh, humanitarian aid in countries um, where uh, our banking system doesn't um, currently allow for it, right? There's all kinds of really sophisticated and fascinating ways that you can use those technologies to counter corruption because of the nature of the technology, the auditability, the fact that you can um, uh, program the money potentially such that if it does end up in the law lo- in the wrong hands, um, you could get it to revert back. I mean, there's just so many really interesting and exciting ways um, that 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 fintech and crypto can, I, I believe, help um, enhance enhance our national security and also help to bring a much greater um, uh, number of people um, into the into the into the banking system than than have access it today. So there are about uh, over a billion people um, who um, who have a mobile phone today who don't have a bank account. Imagine the U.S. You know, through U- great U.S. companies, imagine enabling all of those people to get access to financial. Um, to financial services. There, there are so many, I think, uh, really exciting ways in which that can um, help from a humanitarian perspective, can help from a national security perspective, can help from an economic prosperity 
perspective. So the Chinese seem to to get what you just said, right? They seem to understand the implications of of fintech, and as you know, they've been investing heavily in it. How is it? paid off for them? And where are they on fintech compared to us? Yeah, look, China has, um, I think, uh, an unbelievable number of, you know, very smart and sophisticated um, engineers and product developers um, who who fundamentally understand that nexus between mobile and financial services. So you look at um, at a company like Alipay, which is a Chinese company. Alipay today has, um, and it's a mobile payments network, among other things. Alipay today has 1.3 billion users globally. They have more users than every other major um, fintech combined. So, So if you combine not just the U.S., but all of the major fintech players globally, um, you'll see that there are, let's say we estimated a, about a billion, give or take. Um, that's less than what Alipay has. So it's amazing. So yeah, it's quite it's quite um, extraordinary. And and of course, China also, um, uh, in lots of different ways. But they're they are doing a lot of a lot of work to um, develop their own state owned state controlled. Um, uh, digital currency through something called the ECNY, where they've actually developed um, a digital yuan um, using a variety of different technologies, but in, but with a blockchain component <laughs> um, to it uh, to 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 digitize their currency. No other, uh, with very few exceptions, with some small countries like the Bahamas. No other country, you know, very very few um, countries are even close to where they are in the development of that technology. And if they if they develop that technology. And, and they're able to actually use it for trade, then that cuts them completely out of the U.S. sanction system, correct? Uh, um, it, yes, it's it certainly not completely, but yes, I think to a in large extent it has the, the capability of doing so. And look, they've actually said, you know, that that it's a priority for them to cut U.S., uh, the you know, sort of the U.S. monopolization of the U.S., what they call monopolization of financial infrastructure to, um, and, um, and to, and to expand the use of the, of the yuan. So you and I've talked about this and I, um, you've heard me say that I think, and I think you agree with me that when we talk about sort of the key technologies where we are competing with the Chinese, right, whether it's microelectronics or synthetic bio or AI or radio communications, 5G, that fintech really, really belongs on that list for all the reasons you just talked about. Without a doubt. Look, I, I, you know, I, I think that we really need to make it both a national security and economic security imperative priority to, um, to incentivize uh, that kind of innovation out of the, out of the United States. I, I, I think that if we don't do that, um, then we could find ourselves in a very different uh, place with a different financial global financial infrastructure um, in, in, in not too many in not too many years. And what do we need to do to make sure that that we get this right? What are the big moving parts here? The biggest moving part is what I just said, which is we have to have we, sh- we need to have a national strategy to incentivize that financial technology out of 
out of the out of the United States. And I think it should be something that's really driven um, at the top of the government from the White House with the National Security Council and the National Economic Council. And I know there are lots of people, you know, who are really thinking about this problem. Uh, I think that strategy has to be driven down throughout the federal departments and agencies to 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 implement it. I, I think if that doesn't happen, um, uh, it's going to be very, very difficult for us to to reverse these trends because departments and agencies, you know, they do a ton of great work, but they also tend to kind of, they, they can sometimes operate <laughs> with, um, uh, without infusing like those kinds of principles that make up that sort of the bigger, the bigger picture, right? So you want the banking regulators, for example, to understand that when they, when they take certain actions to really assess what that's going to do, to find it for how that's going to actually enhance financial inclusion, how that's actually going to enhance um, the ability of U.S. companies to to operate all over all over the world, and and if they don't do that, if they don't sort of play this out, I think um, on the enforcement side, you know, across the board, I think um, we may not get the incentives right. That doesn't mean you don't hold entities accountable to, to complying with their regulatory obligations. Of course, that's very important, but you have to do it in such a way that you would advance the ball for financial inclusion, that you advance um, the national security, uh, very important national security implications of a, a continued di- diminishment of, the, of that U.S. Um, presence globally. Seagal, thank you so much for a great conversation and thank you so much for joining us. And um, it sounds to me like what you're doing today is just as important as what you did in the many jobs you had in the U.S. government. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was Seagal Mandelker. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. This show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Jake Rosen, Paulina Smolinski, and Ashley Armstrong. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS Audio. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most-watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.